I'm Ben Horton. And I'm Agnes Frimston, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Agnes, Happy New Year! Happy 2020! How Welcome back. I'm good. Yes. I'm good. How are you? How was your uh, your festive season? Festive. Yeah. Festive. Yeah. Yeah. Quite quiet. Yeah. How about nice. you? Happy days. Yeah, it was massive. Was so it? yeah, saw all the extended family, Did and you? then had to go into sort of hibernation in in the Alps somewhere to avoid oh, <laughs> too of much course. over family. Over ben family went content. skiing. And I'm the posh one. Um, <laughs> did you play any Trivial Pursuit? No, it was lovely. Um, we played lots of games, but Trivial Pursuit wasn't wasn't one of them. Is what? that your go-to Christmas game? I just love a quiz, Ben. Mm, I love, I a, love quiz. a quiz. Do you like Articulate? Yeah, well, what's yours? Tricky, tricky. Don't say Scrabble. No, no, I'm not really a Scrabble person. We do a lot of jigsaws. Ooh, lots of puzzles. Interesting. Well, while we've all been off having a break, the world has not stopped turning and There's plenty been has been going on. News, hasn't it's there? been quite a... a chaotic crazy start to 2020 there has been some changes in the uk royal family as well of course yeah, which you keep up makes it makes but obviously a big piece of international news happened in the middle east it did indeed with the the u.s assassination of the iranian general qasem Soleimani, um which seemed to take the entire world by surprise yeah um it's quite an extreme act whatever you think of it and obviously it's been dominating the headlines ever since there was a time at some point a couple of weeks ago where we it did look as though there was going to be outright conflict in the middle east again between iran and the us and i don't think we can be that relaxed about it not happening in the future no it does seem to have quietened down slightly but we thought the best thing that we could do on this episode is to provide a bit of context a bit of background on everything that's been going on over the US and Iran kind of crisis. So we've got two fantastic interviews for you this week. Yeah. So Agnes, who did you speak to? I spoke to Dr. Renard Mansour, who works in the Middle East uh, Department here at Chatham House uh, on Iraq, because obviously the assassination happened in Baghdad, which is a statement. Uh, so we had a chat about a bit of background on the history of Iraq and Iran relations, a bit of US and Iraq. Uh, and what this might mean for Iraq in the future, because I think we often in the West look at this from a US perspective, US relations. But those two, you know, the two countries are entwined historically in a complicated way. What about you? Absolutely. So I spoke to Dr. Sanam Vakil, who is also with the Middle East and North Africa program here at Chatham House. And uh, her focus is very much on Iran. Um, So we had a discussion about what the crisis means in Iranian domestic politics, how the domestic situation has developed, particularly with protests that were ongoing before before the assassination even took place, but now have taken on a different a different kind of dimension and really what this whole standoff will mean for Iran's reputation. Hope you enjoy listening. Okay, so now I'm joined by Sanam Vakil, who is a senior research fellow in the Middle East and North Africa program here at Chatham House. Sanam, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So we're going to talk, I think this sounds like it's been your 257th interview uh, since last week. We're going to talk a little bit about the situation in Iran at the moment, but particularly we're going to 
provide a bit of background and some context to what's been going on at the start of 2020. So I just wondered whether we could begin maybe with a look back to the kind of origins of the Iranian regime. Where did the government that's currently in power come from and and, and what's been their ideological outlook on the world? Well, that's, I think, probably always good to start at the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) The trouble is, when is the beginning? But I will go back to 1979 when Iran experienced uh, a revolution um, that resulted in the overthrow of uh, the monarchy that had been a consistent um, political system for thousands of years, but this particular monarchy since um, the early 20th century. And in its place, the Islamic Republic was created. um, And the revolution was very publicly supported um, within Iran and among many of the Iranians in the diaspora because the Shah of Iran, the monarch, was considered to be corrupt, absolute, um, disrespectful of human rights. And people were agitating for greater economic liberalization, greater uh, political liberalization. Mm. And with the revolution, the outcome was that a number of nationalist groups, democratic-leaning groups, students were perhaps a bit disappointed by uh, the results because the Islamic Republic um, is a complicated political system where um, a religious leader sits at the top of that system. He's Mm -hmm. called the Supreme Leader, and he's ruling um, in absence of the 12th imam that has gone into occultation in the 10th century. Right. (laughs) bit tricky. Yeah, that's a long sabbatical. (laughs) Yes, yes, it is indeed. But there is a formal system of elected government that also exists in Iran. There's an elected legislature, elected municipal councils, and an elected president. The problem is that you have to qualify uh, for your candidacy and then, of course, be elected by the people. And so there is sort of a checks and balance system that has been created between the elected bodies and the unelected bodies that are more powerful uh, than those um, with uh, popular um, electoral ability. Mm-hmm. So um, as part of the Islamic Republic, um, the, the new policies that came forward were to be independent um, and not reliant on uh, the United States, which had been sort of the previous um, relationship between the monarchy and um the U.S. government had been very strong. So the idea was to have an independent foreign policy. Um, and uh, the new leadership actually were uh, quite anti-American in their posture. Um, so uh, this anti-American tension has been um, uh, really embedded in uh, the Islamic Republic for four decades now. And immediately after the revolution, a group of students took uh, American workers at the embassy hostage for 444 days. Yeah. And that really cemented the hostilities and tensions that uh, have uh, continued to this day. Um, it's, this is probably a whole separate subject of a podcast, but um, on, you know, there's been a lot of back and forth um, over, over 40 years. Yeah. Okay, of course. And, and yeah, 40 years is such a, a, long, a long period to spam. But, but if you could, if I can ask a, another difficultly broad question. So how has the Iranian regime attempted to project its influence in, in the Middle East more generally beyond its relationship to the U.S.? So um, after uh, the 79 revolution, and unfortunately we have to go back to history to understand Iran's relationship to the region, Saddam Hussein, um, the authoritarian uh, leader of Iraq, Mm. invaded Iran. Mm. um, And the two countries were engaged in a long eight-year war. Um, And this war very much 
impacted Iran's worldview and the leadership's worldview, really, because all, almost all of the countries of the Middle East supported Saddam Hussein's effort uh, to really? invade Iran. Oh, okay. And they did so because they were so threatened by the Iranian revolution, by its Islamic orientation, because many people thought that there would be a domino effect and further revolutions would take place. And that Iran's leader, revolutionary leader Khomeini, was actually advocating for other populations to overthrow their monarchies. So there was um, a reason to be fearful. Um, But so um, in the context of the Iran-Iraq war, the region sided with Saddam, except for a few countries, one of them being Syria. Um, And then um, other countries such as Oman um, took a more neutral posture and some of the other smaller um, GCC countries as well. And at the same time... The United States, the United Kingdom, Germany and France also supported Saddam Hussein. Mm. And so Iran survived this eight-year war almost by itself, uh, developing asymmetrical warfare. And um, uh, I think this very much impacted the worldview of the um, IRGC, the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Force, that became very paranoid about being encircled by all of these countries, uh, believe taking on a very defensive posture. And in reaction to that, once the war ended in 1988, Iran began to really cultivate and develop a relationship with um, non-state actors around the region. Um, in 1982, they began to develop a relationship with Lebanese um, Shiite political groups in the country, and they created a political and military party known as Hezbollah, um, which is Shiite-based in terms of composition and ideologically um, was uh, very much inspired by um, the Islamic Republic's um, vision of the Mm -hmm. world and... um, Islamic Republic's version of government. And so Hezbollah was the first group that it developed this relationship with. And the two um, shared like-minded goals of having um, less American influence in the Middle East. And also the other enemy in the region was the state of Israel. And over time and through the years, Iran has then built... um, quite opportunistically, taking advantage of vacuums of power or missteps by the United States, such as in the Iraq War in 2003, to build other relationships, militias, that then have also become politically active and yeah. politically legitimate through elections, like the Iraqi militias in Iraq. Okay. And what what's the aim of Iran, really, in, in supporting these militias? What are they hoping to gain from that? Iran is looking to push its perceived threats away from its borders. This Mm -hmm. is part of its forward defense strategy. And by protecting its territorial integrity and developing leverage in other countries, it believes it can use that leverage to push back against American policies of containment against Iran and um, against Israel Mm -hmm. at the same time. In the West, this may be a bit of a generalization, but but in a lot of Western media outlets, um, Iran for quite a long time has been portrayed as a very sort of authoritarian, even totalitarian regime. It was the Bush administration who put them as part of this axis of axis of evil, evil in yeah. the Middle East. To what extent is that a reality on the ground in Iran? Is it quite an oppressive 
government or is it actually some is the situation somewhat different for Iranian citizens it is an authoritarian state I'm not sure I would characterize it as a totalitarian mm. state but it's a consensus based authoritarian state where um, the political elite are very much part of the decision making process um, which is consensus based relying on individuals and institutions to come collectively uh, to make recommendations and they then inform the supreme leader who takes decisions decisions or doesn't take decisions. So, you know, either way. But it is an authoritarian state in that there is um, no protection for uh, basic um, human rights uh, that perhaps we take for granted here in the West. Right of assembly is questionable. Sometimes you're allowed to, sometimes you're detained and arrested. We have seen protests end very violently in Iran. There is no free press. There is a press, but it's not free. Right. But at the same time, I think Westerners are often very surprised when they go to Iran because people are very vocal, people are very friendly, people are very critical. And so they don't understand how you can have this sort of oppressive state that, that thereby allows um, almost uh, criticism to, to also coexist with them. Um, and it, it's hard to explain and it's hard to navigate. It's oppressive, um, but I think people know the red lines and sometimes they challenge the red lines. And at the same time, rules are not always enforced. So there's a there's a bit of incongruity in terms of expectations sometimes and that's where people take advantage or people can live and 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 live with a degree of peace of mind that they won't be arrested, you know, as long as you're not crossing over and criticizing the political establishment you can be okay. But frankly speaking, um it isn't a, a country where you know, most people would choose to go and uh, and and spend a long period of time there. Mm-hmm. Now, to bring us uh, closer to the present moment, prior to the most recent flashpoint between the US and Iran, which we'll come to, there were protests going on in Iran itself. Is that right? What were those protests really concerning? Where did they come from? So the November protests were... Um, spurred by a government decision to raise petrol prices and um, redistribute the subsidy system um, to uh, provide cash transfers to poorer Iranian citizens. Um, This is not a bad policy. Most economists would support this, and most Iranian economists did support it. Um, The problem with this policy is that it was poorly uh, rolled out, very little communication um, to uh, ordinary Iranians. And um, this policy is being implemented uh, during a a time of extreme economic pressure due to uh, President Trump's maximum pressure campaign against the Islamic Republic. Little context there. In May of 2018, the U.S. president withdrew from the Iran nuclear agreement, arguing that the deal was not comprehensive enough. um, And by withdrawing, he reimposed nuclear related sanctions on the Islamic Republic. And the sanctions over the past year have, of course, uh, taken an impact, very much um, hurting ordinary Iranians who have seen their currency uh, depreciate, inflation increase, unemployment increase. And so the protests in November, to go back to them, um, are very much a result of poorly managed policies and economic pressure inside the country and and I think just deep-seated frustration that has been mounting. And the government reacted through uh, uh, shutting off the internet and cracking down quite severely and there were hundreds of people who were reportedly killed. Wow. 
come now to January 2020, where we are, and um, could you just tell us a little bit about the events leading up to the US assassination of, of the Iranian general Qasem Soleimani and kind of what happened as we were all returning from our New Year's <laughs> celebrations? So, I mean, I think it's important to go back to Trump's policy and the Iran nuclear agreement. Mm -hmm. Part of the reason he pulled out is, A, he thought the nuclear agreement um, was not a strong enough agreement to contain or constrain Iran's nuclear ambitions. Mm -hmm. Um, But secondly, the nuclear deal um, did not include any sort of agreement on um, Iran's influence in the region. And so the reimposition of sanctions has been designed to also try and constrain Iran's regional activity. Yes. Conversely, we have seen greater Iranian activism since then, and um, Iran has not altered its relationships with its proxy groups around the region that it supports. Um, And uh, since May of 2018 has began to escalate, and proxy groups have begun to indirectly launch missiles. Uh, the Houthis in Yemen have been for that have been in a, a war with Saudi Arabia for a long time and the UAE were uh, launching a number of missiles into uh, Saudi Arabia. Um, there was a lot of political um, instability also seen mm-hmm. in Iraq. And Iran also began to escalate tensions within the Iran nuclear agreement simultaneously. Yeah. So I think that's a bit of the backdrop. Over the past summer, we also saw Iran seizing tankers in the Persian of Gulf. Yep. And mm-hmm. they were are believed to be behind the attacks on um, Saudi Arabia's oil fields in Abreib and Khores. Mm-hmm. So this is a bit of the backdrop to the escalation. Exactly. And was that a, was that a show of defiance? Or what was, what's the motivation behind escalating in response to the sanctions? I think that the Iranian government has sought to show that they have the ability to also resist maximum pressure. Mm-hmm. And their tools uh, at their disposal um, or their, the leverage that they have are through these proxy-based relationships and their ability to cause damage and instability um, in the Middle East. So that's what they have been trying to do to transfer the cost of maximum pressure to other countries, perhaps in order to pressure Trump to alter mm-hmm. his policy or just um, to fracture support for maximum pressure um, within within the region. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. So to bring us back to exactly what happened, what was the escalation right, right up to date? So mm-hmm. on December 27th, um, Iranian proxy groups launched missile attacks um, that resulted in the death of an American contractor. And in all of the previous escalations, the U.S. did not really react, did not establish deterrence, did not strike back against Iran. And President Trump has always maintained that loss of American life is his red line. Mm. And with the loss of um, the life of this American contractor, uh, the president decided to establish deterrence and did so by killing Qasem Soleimani. Um, There were a number of events also in Iraq that also matter. The U.S. embassy was also stormed. Iraq seemed to be really heating up as an area of conflict between the two sides. So um, I think the American position was to push back against Iran in a meaningful way that the Iranians would rethink any sort of regional escalation. Mm -hmm. Then what did we see from Iran in response to this? Well, of course, there were very difficult days of waiting, um, Mm. and the Iranians tried to draw out um, 
their response for um, as long as they could, really because there was a lot of international anxiety um, about how Iran would react. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to sort of capitalize on this moment of unity within Iran, um, sort of shift the uh, focus away from protests and and regional instability and remind the world that um, they do have supporters inside the country. And Qasem Soleimani was actually a popular figure inside Iran. Mm And uh, after the funeral ceremonies um, were concluded, um, the Iranians hit an Iraqi military base, um, and um, they did so in a calibrated way to avoid loss of life, both on the Iraqi side and on um, the American side, Mm -hmm. and in a series of tweets announced that or suggested that this was going to be the end of this escalatory period. Unfortunately, on that same day, lost in the news was that a Ukrainian airplane was brought down Mm. and nobody in in that moment knew why. Um, I think we all had questions. And what emerged after the direct crisis with the United States died down was that it appeared that Iran had been responsible for the downing of the airline with uh, a surface-to-air missile and human error uh, being responsible for, for that tragedy and the loss of 176 lives. From there, Iranians reacted very angrily. They thought of, you know, these deaths, uh, this tragedy. They were very angry about the government denial, initial denial, and initial response to the crisis. And um, it has brought up, I think, decades of anger and frustration about government mismanagement, about uh, government policies, uh, lack of transparency, poor governance, Mm. the fact that... The government response to Soleimani's death was so carefully calibrated to avoid the loss of American lives. And then here, uh, so many innocent people died in in this sort of tragic reaction. Mm -hmm. So we're in this moment where we're seeing protests again in Tehran. And, uh, you know, it's very unclear how everything is going to evolve from here. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think the initial reaction that I saw from a lot of commentators here was that Trump has kind of scored a bit of an own goal. He's just given the Iranian government a great sort of story to tell about sort of US adventurism and and he's intervened in this sort of disproportionate way. But do you think that actually what we've seen since is that it's not as simple as that, that really there's still a lot of challenges for the Iranian regime with this episode? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think that the protests right now are really um, putting a lot of pressure on the government because... Mm-hmm. Um, They don't want to overreact. They do recognize that um, this is a huge tragedy and they have to demonstrate some accountability and bring uh, some sense of transparency to the investigation and and perhaps justice Mm. for the victims. But they're in a difficult position because this is an authoritarian state at the end of the day. They're also under maximum pressure and locked in um, this conflict with the United States. Um, And there doesn't seem to be any off-ramp to that conflict. The Trump administration is continuing to double down on sanctions. More sanctions were just announced just a few days ago. And at the same time, the um, European signatories of the Iran nuclear agreement today have escalated what is known as the dispute resolution mechanism, calling out Iran for its repeated breaches to the nuclear agreement. So it's a very complicated, moving chess chess game that is mm. taking place, not just between Iran and the United States and Iran and Europe, but also between the Iranian government and its people. Mm. 
as 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 think tank uh, researchers we sort of shy away from making too many sort of hard and fast <laughs> predictions about what's likely to happen in the future but um how do you think this is going to play out then because it does seem like a particularly intractable crisis that we're experiencing at the moment Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to be predictive per se, but I perhaps can lay out <laughs> some scenarios of what to expect. I think 2020 is going to be a very difficult year for Iran, mm-hmm. economically and politically. Um, and the Iranian government, um, I think part of the reason why it was careful in its reaction and, and sort of response to Soleimani's killing is because it's January 2020 and the US election is November of 2020. Mm-hmm. And they have to sort of carefully calculate how to play their hand between now and through the rest of the year. Um, they they probably recognize that they do have to eventually negotiate with the Trump administration. The U.S. The un- uncertainty here is if they're going to negotiate with the Trump administration or another potential yeah. American president. So they're going to try to play for time yeah. uh, vis-a-vis the United States and um, in part of the strategy of playing for time is to build leverage again um, and to come to the negotiating table from a perceived position of strength, not from this current um, moment where they are weaker domestically and um, seemingly weaker um, at a regional level. So I expect that we're going to have a series of crises and um, those could involve regional actors. Again, proxy groups We're definitely um, on a fast track crisis with regards to the Iran nuclear agreement. And um, Iran, at the meantime, is going to be watching the atmosphere in Washington and watching the president and seeing if he has an appetite to make a deal uh, before 20, before November or uh, to see if if actually impeachment and the domestic climate in the United States might change. So um, it's going to be a long and bumpy year, unfortunately. Mm, absolutely. Well, thank you very much for setting all of that out so, so amazingly. And um, yeah, hope to have you back on later in the year to update us on what's been going on. Definitely. Thank you. Sananda Kill, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. So, I'm here with Dr. Renard Mansour, who is a senior research fellow at the Middle East and North Africa program um, here at Chatham House and the project director of the Iraq Initiative. Hello. Hello. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So you co-wrote um, a an expert comment on, well, called How the Soleimani Assassination Will Reverberate Throughout the Middle East. But we're going to talk about this from an Iraq perspective. Mm-hmm. Do you think for Iraq... This was a big shock, and do you think do you think it matters hugely that it that the assassination occurred in Baghdad? Yeah, I think uh, for many in Iraq, uh, watchers of Iraq as well as watchers of the region, it was a huge shock. It was the unthinkable that the U.S. Uh, would take out uh, this very senior Iranian general. Uh, who had this cult of personality around him. Of course, previous U.S. administrations may have had the opportunity to do so, but it was always out of the realm of possibility. Uh, So certainly it was a shock as part of this growing escalation that we've seen between the U.S. and Iran. And, you know, to answer your question, is it a shock that it was in Iraq? Where else is the playground sort of going to be for these two? I mean... For the last few years, for the last several years, actually, Iraq has been where both the U.S. and Iran have serious interests, where they're not willing to lose those interests. And so it becomes the playground uh, where where they try and maintain interests against each other, especially after they both kind of 
in a weird way fought not directly together but on the same side in, de- in defeating the Islamic State. Uh, and, and the question was always after that, how would these two foes uh, get around this idea uh, of, of who wins and who loses in Iraq? On the Islamic State point, hmm. they, they didn't sort of sign a treaty. They weren't actual allies, but they no. were just fighting the same. They had a common enemy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So does Iraq feel really torn and used in this situation? I mean, if by Iraq you mean the government, yeah. yeah. I mean, the Iraqi state has been uh, quite weak, uh, especially since 2003, really. Um, and it has this weird position of have, having strong relations with both the U.S. and Iran. But over time, you know, there used to be this idea in Iraq after 2003, which side will Iraq go? Is it going to go more towards Iran, more towards the U.S.? And it was an actual question, every leader, which side is he or she on? I think in the last few years, it's become quite clear that the Iraqi government, uh, officials in the Iraqi government and state have been moving more towards Iran. If you think about it, there was a time where the U.S. president would speak to the Iraqi prime minister weekly. Wow. This Trump administration has refused to invite the Iraqi prime minister and the Iraqi president to Washington to meet. He, Trump has not met the Iraqi prime minister. And this is a massive change in U.S. policy, but also an indication of waning U.S. influence in Iraq, a country that has been pivotal, despite Obama's attempts to pivot away from it, for U.S. interests, not just in Iraq, but in the region. So would you say that the relations with the U.S. and the relations with Iran are they competing? In the, are they economic? Could they symbiotically exist for Iraq, or is it one or the other? Well, I think the challenge now is that the the U.S.'s main policy, especially under the Trump administration, is is less to stabilize Iraq as much as it is to go against Iran. Mm-hmm. So you have this tunnel vision where Iran is is the focus. I would say in previous administrations there may have been uh, an understanding that Iran is to use their words, a kind of malign, malignant force, and it's problematic. But it was almost like, do we really want to fight that battle in Iraq where we have all these other vested interests in stabilizing this government? I think increasingly with this Trump administration, Iran is you know, enemy number one, and whatever is left you know, in, 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 in the crossfire, uh, so be it. And I think that's why perhaps... You know, among anyone who can try and explain why Trump made this decision would would won't be, you know, would have a difficult time. I think some would think that for Trump, it's more important to go against Iran than to be concerned about the long term stability of Iraq. And so do you think this will push the Iraqi state to be more pro-Iran? Because they feel they've been abandoned or... Yeah. So, I mean, you know, we've been talking about sort of what are the longer term implications Mm. because, you know, everyone was looking for that tit for tat. Everyone's looking, okay, the U.S. strike, you know, hit the general. How is Iran going to retaliate? But, you know, the U.S. does this military strike effectively. It's the strongest military in the world. But that's not really Iran's game. Iran's game is not just to strike back at, at, at a proportional level. Iran's game is much more long term. How do you take advantage of this move to retaliate, to gain more influence. So certainly Iran will attempt to do that. And the irony in all this was at the end of 2019, let's say before this attack, Iran was on the losing end in many parts of the Middle East, including Iraq. You had all these Iraqis marching in protests, basically screaming Iran out, out, and going against all of the proxies and allies that Iran has in Iraq. And all of a sudden, what you're seeing now in Iraq are these leaders, the political elite, that were facing all these protests, now 
coming up with this idea, wait a minute, maybe we can go back to that tool of anti-Americanism. Now that the U.S. has hit Iraq, we can go back to, we have another external enemy that's not Iran. So they'll try and use this anti-American sentiment. You've even seen Muqtada al-Sadr, and this is just one example, Sadr, who in the recent years was actually on the side of protests in Iraq, has now said he wants to bring back his Mahdi army. And he, he's, he's meeting with all these militias who would have been his enemy just a few months ago and basically saying the resistance is back, the Islamic resistance against U.S. is back. They've been trying to do this for years. They've been trying to pull out, the, push U.S. troops out of the country for years. But many people thought the U.S. has no influence in Iraq anymore. With this strike, there is a question of whether uh, anti-Americanism could over sort of come over and sideline the reform movements and the other discourses and narratives that Iraqis have been trying to push. A protest, and I've been, we've been speaking to many protesters uh, after this attack to kind of gauge what the interest is. There's an interesting third element that's emerging, and Iraqis are saying, listen, yes, we're against the U.S., but we're also against Iran. And so that binary of U.S.-Iran doesn't really work for many Iraqis, especially in the crisis south and, and center. And especially, like, Russia is a good example of redefining yourself by being anti-the West. Mm -hmm. You know, it's quite dangerous, isn't it, really, if you define Mm -hmm. yourself just by not being your enemy. Mm -hmm. This is a big question, so I'm sorry. Uh Can you give us a potted history of why Iran and Iraq in recent history have had such a complex relationship? How far back do we go? When was the last time they were close allies? So I think relevant history in the modern history we can we'll talk about especially with this Iranian government let's talk about post 79 so you know the Islamic revolution happens before that the Shah of Iran actually had an agreement with with Baghdad in the 70s this friendship agreement mm-hmm. um, but what happened in 79 is uh, you have this revolution in Tehran and you have the you know the Islamic Republic eventually is is, is announced and Saddam Hussein who becomes the president of Iraq in 79 at the same time decides to start a war. And you have this really nasty, really gru- you know, brutal eight-year war between the two. And is that based on cultural differences or religious basis or just a border? So it's, I mean, I, I, I would say it's based on interests, okay. based on fear, based, you know, based on opportunities. I mean, opportunism, because Saddam would have thought this, you know, new government in Tehran is, is weak, based on international sort of nudging. You know, there was a lot of concern around the region as well as in, in the world, what is happening. All these clerics are now leading. I would say when we look at sort of, you know, is this, you know, although Saddam tried to use this Arab versus Persians and and the Iranians tried to use this Persian empire, that stuff is always superficial. It's always what the elite try and use to justify it. But in terms of versus interest, it's really about power. Mm -hmm. It's about economics. It's about influence uh, and and also, you know, gaining geopolitical uh, sort of leverage. So that war happens and you don't have a winner. Uh, both sides basically just kill each other. Yeah. Um, sounds, sounds like war, really. Generally. Yeah. 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 Uh, there's no treaty. That's it's just, it's, you know, we will just end the war in, in 1988. And it's just like they had just beaten each other to, to a point where they just... They just ran out. They ran out of, yeah. you know. Um, and, and what's interesting is, you know, these people like Qasem Sleimani, who was killed, uh, Abu Mehdi, Al-Muhandis, also different militias. They're in, these were their formative years. Their yeah. formative years were that fight between Iran and Iraq, all of the leadership or most of the leadership remember that. So when they look at Iraq after 2003, Iran's number one priority in Iraq 
is to make sure that never happens again, to make sure that Iraq is never, A, obviously an enemy, but two, and critically, strong. Right. But 2014, and now we've jumped into sort of very recent history. The idea is often of the European Union is to make sure that there's never another European war. Yeah. It's not actually to ensure that certain people aren't powerful. So that's the joint tension of we want, not not that we want to be allies, but we don't want to be enemies. Is yeah. that it? Or... I think they just both had run out of steam. It yeah. became clear that this sort of there wasn't going to be that much. There wasn't going to be a victor. Okay. Uh, and the question became, you know, is there a mutually hurting stalemate? I think perhaps there was a mutually hurting stalemate where they both thought that they, they were better off just ending this war. Uh, Iran was, of course, using different proxies in Iraq, especially in northern Iraq in the mountains to fight against Saddam. Saddam was attacking back. I think in the region there was this kind of, okay, that's enough, nothing has happened. And, you know, eight years seems like short compared to other wars, but, uh, you know, it it ended with mass killings, genocide, and and, and quite significant crimes against humanity. And presumably a lot of anger because... A lot of people have suffered for a long time on both sides yeah. and there's no real resolution. Yeah, and for both sides, what became a bigger issue was their own domestic audiences. Right, yeah. So, okay, the two governments don't like each other, but now they also have to deal with these domestic audiences. They've spent, they've bankrupt their country. They have all these martyrs who have died for their country and nothing to show for. Yeah. So the domestic becomes important. And at that point, Iraq and Iran embark on two different paths. Of course, Iran... And keep in mind, Iran's relation with the U.S. becomes its most important sort of regional and foreign policy uh, agenda at that time. Iran and the U.S. had very strained relations uh, because of the, the hostage crisis of the you know the U.S. hostage crisis and, and and other issues through the 80s. But if we're talking about Iraq, Iraq continues to be you know Saddam Hussein continues to be a problematic leader. But at this point, he's weak. He decides to invade Kuwait. He, he then he starts being hit by sanctions. He's weak. And what's interesting um, is when Saddam was eventually asked, you know, after 2003 when he was captured, you didn't have weapons of mass destruction. Why don't you just say that? Yeah. Right? Why don't you just say it? Listen, guys, I don't have these weapons. <laughs> yeah. Don't take, get rid of them. Right? It led to his downfall. And uh, out of many reasons that he would say, you know, he didn't think he, he wanted to call a bluff, all of these things. One of the big reasons why was he was worried that Iran would know he was weak. And that might change the sort of equation and might entice further agitation into his country. And so you do have a paranoia even before 2003 that Iran is seeking to gain influence in Iraq. Yeah, I mean, what a, what a risk. Yeah, what, <laughs> what, a, gamble, what a cost, yeah. yeah. What a gamble. And so in, after 2003, the U.S. does what it does really well, which is bomb, but not have any idea what comes the next day. So, uh, so the U.S. bombs you know, Iraq, destroys large parts of the state, but doesn't have a day after, creating a vacuum for anyone, really, to try and gain influence. And of course, on the border, Iran finds this perfect opportunity to gain influence. Mm-hmm. And Iran starts working with allies, whether they're Shia or even Kurdish and Sunni allies, to make sure that, you know, it is in control of Iraq. In control, Iraq is its ally, not enemy, and Iraq isn't strong to come back. And that goes on for some years. 2014 becomes the next big sort of year because what happens in 2014 is these few thousand Salafi jihadi fighters known as the Islamic State take over a third of Iraq's territory and are all of a sudden on the border with Iran, right? And out of all the lessons that one draws from that catastrophe, for Iran, one of the main lessons was Iraq can't be, can't be weak. Because, okay, 
or let's say Iraq can't be too weak. Yeah. Because, okay, you don't want Iraq to be too strong, but at the same time, an Iraq that is too weak allows for these very brutal antagonistic forces to gain territory in Iraq. So then there has to be this sort of compromise that Iran has because 2014 was a mistake for Iran's policies. Yeah. Uh, and, and that compromise is, okay, so we need an Iraq that's able to control its territory. We ideally want to have good relations with both Iraq's state actors, but also non-state actors, and what we're calling hybrid actors, which are the kind of in and out, one foot in, one foot out. We need to have this type of influence so as to ensure that this country that's our border that we have this huge history with doesn't ever become a strong antagonistic foe yeah and yeah instability is the key basically isn't it that like it can be it can be weak but not unstable unstable and at the behest of of you know the you know isis's number one enemy on the surface was the shia and was iran yeah and so and they were on the border with iran so if you think of sort of iran's span and stretch across the region. Iraq is important for Iran because it's on its border. So beyond all the economic and ideological, all those things, it's a security. Yeah. And it's on its border. So it's it automatically becomes even more important. Do you think the two countries are bound together forever, basically? Whether in like, geographically? No, just sort of in identity and history and yeah, because obviously geographically there's, yeah. there's there's a line, isn't there? But you know, do they define each other themselves by not being each other? So, I mean, it depends. As I say, you have had in the past short instances of, of, of Iraq and Iran being allies. Of course, you know, they're very large trading partners. Um, the current government is very close to the Iranian government. The prime minister, the president, all of them have visited Iran, have strong relations with Iran. Um, so I wouldn't say that even at the moment the Iraqi government and the Iranian government are are foes. They're actually very good allies, yeah. which is why America is like freaking out right now. It's it's hard to say. I think the issue is these are two strong, sort of historical states. Uh, and although Iraq, you know, obviously when we think of history, we think about the big empires. We obviously think of Persia versus the Ottomans. You know, Iraq is a, is a British creation of three provinces, but Baghdad as a city. Mm has been the home of several different civilizations that have competed with Persian civilizations For a long time. and Ottomans. So, yeah, I I tend to kind of not move into the sort of ideological and, and sort of identity-based reasons for, for there to be conflict because that that's always, I mean, it's there, but it we've seen it could be overcome. I think it's more of a competition. And what you're going to see moving forward is things like water will become huge because Iran controls the water coming into Iraq. And so that's where conflict will come. Or electricity, gas, economics. These are the real reasons why these countries uh, looking forward may at some point come back to being at odds with each other. And do you think if Iran and Iraq were to become close allies for a, a chunk of time in the future, that would dramatically change the politics and power balance in the Middle East? Yes. I mean, Iraq has, as I say, had this ability to to somehow have relations with, with the US and Iran, with the Gulf, with everyone. And I think that there's an important point to this. In a sanctioned Iran that's closed off from the world kind of benefits from having someone like Iraq, a government like Iraq, because it then has a lifeline not just to Iraq's market, but also almost like an indirect to the to, to to the Europe and indirectly to to the US because Iraq has those relations and it can do that without looking to its population like it's close to the West yeah it's a jump, it's a jump exactly yeah. and so the question becomes if and and there you know 
one these days has to assume sort of many different scenarios. Uh, if Iraq becomes what's known as a pariah state, like Iran, a state that's not has no diplomatic relations, if the U.S. completely leave, which would mean, by the way, that many European countries would have to leave because of the cover that U.S. provide. If Iraq becomes closed off, that won't be in Iran's best interest as well. Um, so moving forward, I think Iraq and, you know, and, and the president of Iraq was uh, this past summer was at Chatham House. And the main message that he gave us was we do not want Iraq to be a battleground for any regional or international conflict. We want to have good relations uh, with, with many countries. If that changes, there is a real sort of risk that, the, as you say, the geopolitical uh, considerations in, in the region would change and, and we'd have to see what happens then. So I want to ask you about the Iraq Initiative. What is the Iraq Initiative? Well, the, well, the Iraq Initiative, uh, so I, you know, I came to Chatham House a few years ago and I was working mainly on, on Iraq and at the time, a lot of our attention was on ISIS and everyone was interested on, you know, how do you remove ISIS or how do you, you know, defeat ISIS? How do you rebuild the country? But we started to think, you know, what we were seeing again is this military solution uh, to defeat a, a, an organization, to remove it from its territory. But there hasn't been a full victory over ISIS. There hasn't been a, an attempt to get rid of some of the roots of ISIS. And so we decided to kind of build this Iraq initiative, which is to really, you know, do research based on our networks of researchers across Iraq to understanding, you know, things like state building and stabilization. And how, how, how do you kind of move past the many, many cycles of conflict that you've seen in Iraq since 2003? Because, you know, what you've seen since 2003 is military groups emerging, then the U.S. And, and others bombing them out, whether it was the surge, you know, under Petraeus in 2008, or the ISIS campaign in 2017, 16, 17, 18. And then these groups just coming back in a few years. So the fundamental question of the Iraq initiative is, how is Iraq destined on this path? Or what are the key indicators, economic, political, social, that would sort of help Iraq establish a path where, you know, it could rebuild the state? What should we be looking out for in the rebuilding of the Iraqi state? From the work on that initiative, do you think that uh, the, popu the general population of Iraq have faith in the idea of a new state? This is really interesting. You know, l just this past year, as part of our initiative, we've convened events in Basra, in Baghdad, uh, in Ramadi, Ambar, in Mosul. Uh, so we've been very active and we've been constantly engaging with Iraqis. Um, we've actually even run a survey across the country. And, and, and one of the countries, oh, sorry, one of the questions that we asked was, uh, what type of leader would you want, right? Because there's this, all this conversation about uh, Iraq is never going to be democratic. Iraqis don't want Democrats. You know, democracy is just an idea that's, you know, West Western and it won't work in the Middle East and it won't work in Iraq. Why are we trying? The number one answer across the country was Iraqis wanted a free and fairly elected leader. Not a tribal leader, not a dictator, not a, you know, and, and, and still, in, in, you know, in, in 2020, we're having conversations where people say, oh, Iraqis just want dictators or just want authoritarians. Yes, they want stability and they want predictability, but they also don't want to be at the behest of a dictator. Yeah. So I would say, you know... It's very patronizing to think that 
it still it's happens. A, it's, a, it's only a Western concept and nobody else I mean, can understand. It still happens. I mean, I, we're always in conversations in London, D.C., elsewhere, where you will have very senior U.S. foreign policy analysts, yeah. you know, who'd never th- who say things like Iraq is just not, you know, ready or, or, or you know, Iraq isn't going to be democratic. So I think that what we're trying to do with the initiative is try and move against some of these bigger narratives that you have on Iraq uh, you know, especially coming from the West, trying, you know, have Western capitals, European capitals, American capitals, American, you know, Washington, understand what Iraqis are saying, what Iraqis want, and what are some of the roots of conflict uh, that they have been unable, you know, for the last 16 years to address. Okay. So, final question for you. What do you think are going to be the long term implications for Iraq of this assassination? It's still sort of, we're still digesting and trying to understand because it's such a big event, as I say, an event that was probably unimaginable. If you had asked anyone who was looking at Iraq the day before, would this happen? No, I think very few people would say this is going to happen. Um, as I say, Iran is is less interested in that tit for tat trying to be, you know, you know, take revenge by attacking Americans in the same way because A, it can't, and B, it's not really its game. I think if you look at where Iraq was in 2019, at the end of 2019, before this attack, uh, Iran was on the back foot. Iran was losing influence. You had these protests emerging. There was all these trends. And so I think to answer your question, look at how does this change the trends, right, of, of Iraq and where it was after 2019. What you're beginning to see is, as, and as I mentioned, this anti-Americanism coming back where it wasn't really there as much before. So we'll have to look at to what extent the elite, especially the Shia elite, could begin to use anti-Americanism to try and regain uh, the legitimacy that they've lost as the protesters were protesting against them. And, 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 and linked to that... In the last few years in Iraq, what you had was kind of the breakdown of those big ethno-sectarian blocs, right? So actually, after the last election in 2018, you had two Shia groups. And within the two big Shia competing blocs, you had Kurds, Sunnis, and others, right? So that was a different picture than, let's say, 2005 Iraq, where you had a Shia group, a Kurdish group, and then a sort of secular Sunni sort of group. What you're beginning to see, and, and this is just one indicator of that, if you look at the parliament vote right immediately after this killing... There was an emergency session where the only motion that was tabled was withdrawal of U.S. troops. If you look at the voting behavior, the Shia came back together. So the two competing blocs, Shia came together to vote for it. The Kurds and the Sunnis abstained, did not want to vote for it. So you have this risk of the kind of progress that you've had in moving away from ethno-sectarianism creeping back in as the U.S. becomes a a, a viable external threat again. As, as, as at least the way the elite, the Iraqi leaders would want to use that to, to regain legitimacy, which would mean, in, in a worst case scenario, sidelining the protests, sidelining those reformists who've been saying, you know, who, who've been calling for a change. And I think more longer term, if the U.S. troops leave Iraq, which many are predicting they will do, that, what it, that says a lot for U.S.-Iraq relations, but not just that, but many European capitals, NATO, the EU, the UN, rely on U.S. cover in Iraq. Mm-hmm. So if the U.S. leave Baghdad, a lot of international delegations will also leave Iraq. As I say, worst case scenario, Iraq will be sliding towards a kind of pariah state, and that's a worst case scenario. Some, you know, some more optimistic scenario 
would be that what you saw last Friday in Baghdad and the rest of you know many southern cities, which were these protesters came out and said no to the U.S. but also no to Iran, Iraq first. However, the question then becomes. Will the Iraqi authorities allow these protests to continue? These protests are quite revolutionary. It's a much younger generation uh, who, who of, of men and women who don't have sort of permanent jobs, who don't have homes, who are quite willing to sit there for months and months, and who very clearly don't want to play that game of U.S. versus Iran. So the question becomes, will they be able to continue sitting there, or will the authorities begin to use violence uh, to, to sweep out what is the greatest existential threat they face since 2003. Thank you so much, Renard. That was great and positive. Well, that was really interesting. It's great to have sort of more background on Iran because my knowledge of Iranian sort of history and it, it's largely Persepolis, which is slightly embarrassing, you know, yeah. um, and you know where that tension and conflict is coming from internally. There is a bit of me that sort of feels, if with the sort of development of drone technology, which you know we've talked about and we're all a bit worried about, it means that international states are very targeted, mm. and it's only the leaders who get killed, and it's not hundreds of <laughs> men in the army. It's sort of a return to almost like medieval knight or king murdering. And I wonder what that might do to the international stage. And maybe the Quaker in me thinks it's it's not a bad development. Is that controversial? <laughs> Fair enough. Rather I than mean, thousands I, and thousands of people dying. Well, yeah. I mean, it, does, it certainly does seem that if that were to become a more common behaviour, that that would be quite a significant change. In you know, we'd be yeah. talking about very much sort of different international norms when it's never really been necessarily clear why you know, like exactly these incredibly senior military people would necessarily deserve protection yeah, over exactly. compared to anyone else, compared to any other kind of soldier or troop on the ground. Yeah, so. and I don't think we can underestimate how much this might have changed the way that people, well, people's attitudes to conflict and war because a single drone attack on a very very senior individual in a foreign country you know you're talking about very senior individuals being taken out in a way that it's not really been done before and it would yeah it would be like Boris Johnson getting murdered in Paris or Pompeo getting murdered in London you know London would be hit by that if this is what the US is saying it is okay to do that will that will change potentially change the way that conflicts can be acted out in the future don't you think mm, absolutely yeah sobering thoughts from Agnes Rimston oh, to God, end this I know. episode I just of Undercurrents let's make a joke said some things laid down some truth we don't have any jokes we're no. just going to leave it there but we will be back with you in a couple of weeks with some new interviews on some different countries and uh, hopefully in that time knock on wood there will be no World War 3 yeah, and my cold will have gone. And your cold will have gone. Yeah, fingers crossed, because it's <laughs> been a nightmare recording this. Yeah, There's the joke. <laughs> Way, the joke. We're back. <clears throat> okay, fantastic. Well, Happy New Year, everybody. Yep. Thank you. Welcome back to another episode, another series of Undercurrents. I'm Ben Horton. And I'm Agnes Rimston, and you've been listening to Undercurrents. <laughs>